This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the one and only Maya Culpa podcast, now on the Mighty Midas Touch Network. So look for the blue banner for all future episodes of our show. And today, we're bringing you, again, something special. It's part two of the live show with my guest, Katie Fang, recorded on December 9th at the City Winery in New York City. And let's go now to the show. And since we're talking about maggots and people who have some crazy, um, crazy, crazy ideology, think about the third in line. It's really two in line to the presidency. And I'm talking about Christian nationalist MAGA Mike Johnson. I mean, if he's not scaring the shit out of you, I don't know what will. But Johnson is eerily similar, if you think about it, to Commander Fred Waterford of The Handmaid's Tale. He wants America to be strictly a Christian country with women's reproductive decisions needing to be consistent with his interpretation of the Bible. How dangerous is he? How dangerous is this ideology to America's growth, America's future? So in the literal of census, he's, da- he's very dangerous because he's third in line. President, vice president, and then the Speaker of the House. The other, uh, the other, the other way that he's very dangerous is, and this kind of talks about this. This goes exactly what we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago. He is the actual embodiment of these things that that used to be impolite to talk about. That people would whisper that that was their opinions, or this is things that they thought about, or things that they thought, or maybe you would just have to go to some evangelical barn-raising experience, and then you'd be able to hear this type of white Christian nationalist sentimentalities. He proudly wears it. He doesn't hide it. And that's actually what's going on in this chaos caucus that we have in Congress right now. It is a badge of honor to be a Mike Johnson. It is a badge of honor to be a Lauren Boebert and a Matt Gates and a Lindsey Graham and a Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all of them. It's a badge of honor. It used to be something where you would be shunned for being so radical and so extremist in what your views are. I mean, how many of you literally had your jaw dropped when you learned that his teenage son which, by the way, is no longer a teenager and nobody sees his, ado- his not adopted but adopted son, that that was his porn accountability partner. Who uses their child as a porn accountability partner to check their other's phones to see if you're looking at inappropriate stuff? I mean, that type of mentality of a father with a child, that's what should scare you so much, that he seems to think that it's okay. And everything he's talking about, that abortion is an American holocaust, the language that he used, again, it's language that was always not said out loud, and yet now it's been said, you know what, it's okay, you can let that freak flag fly. Let me talk about a freakazoid. We do, however, have to talk about both sides, right? Because it's not 100% fair that this is a shit on Donald Trump Republican Party. That's not the nature, really, even of the podcast. So we do have to talk about the elephant in the room, and that's, of course, Hunter Biden. How much of an impact do you think that his trials now for tax and gun-related issues are going to have on Joe Biden's presidential campaign? My answer is who? Why? Who the fuck? Who cares? Unfortunately, only- unfortunately, a lot of people really do care because when you turn around and they they say, oh, well, Donald Trump had documents hidden at Mar-a-Lardo. And then they turn around and say, yeah, but Joe Biden had it in his Corvette. And in his Mike garage. Pence had and documents. Then, right. And then they turn around and they say to you, well, you know, Trump is being charged in the Alvin Bragg case for, you know, um, money issues for taxes and so on. Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, it's. But the funny thing is we all acknowledge that it's not Joe Biden. Hunter Biden's not running for the presidency. It's Joe Biden. So why? Why is it that we allow we allow them to continue to talk about Hunter Biden's laptop, Hunter Biden's drug addiction, Hunter Biden's tax and gun-related charge, as if this should affect Joe Biden's presidential campaign? It's illogical. It's all a part of a bigger scheme. 
If you look at the Hunter Biden indictment that just came out yesterday or two days ago, it's being used by James Comer to bootstrap an impeachment inquiry vote. That's all it is. They want to be able to say, oh, you want to point to Trump and say that he's been twice impeached? Well, look at Biden. He's been impeached, too. So they kind of wash each other out. I mean, that's not logic. And that's definitely not intelligence. But that's why people, not us, but that's why the Republicans are going to look at the Hunter Biden situation and say that false equivalency. Well, Biden, Hunter Biden had all these problems. He didn't pay his taxes, but he did pay his taxes. He paid back the tax deficiencies. He paid them. He had a negotiated two misdemeanor plea that was picked apart by a Trump appointed judge in August. Those two misdemeanor charges were dismissed by that same judge in August. And then miraculously, it's nine counts now. So if you don't think that that's a vindictive prosecution, and you know what a vindictive prosecution is, don't you, Michael? Well, sure. I mean, anybody that read, you know, Revenge, I Lay It Out is the most disgusting, and it's the forensic dissection of the most corrupt prosecution in as far as I'm concerned, in U.S. Um, history, as it relates to dealing with Donald Trump, next, you know, first thing I find out you know, on a Friday night that um, if I don't come in on Monday and plead guilty, they're filing an 80-page indictment that was going to include my wife. And so I'm saying to myself, you've got to be shitting me. My lawyer says, no, they're dead serious. They have a filed 80-page indictment ready to go. Well, I did what I would suspect any spouse would do. And I said, fuck it. Okay. I never thought the judge was going to do to me what the judge ended up doing. And you know, it's, it's a smorgasbord of crimes. But what? By putting every single dollar in a bank that's located at the base of the building that you live in and then giving all of your tax documents to your accountant who you overpaid anyway, who ended up making a mistake. It's called a tax omission. It happens. I've never once had an opportunity to speak not once to a member of the IRS to talk about it. And when they finally gave me the correct number, I ended up paying it, which was even before sentencing. But that didn't matter to the judge because, again, when that political system has you, and this is the warning that I say to everybody, as bad as it was for me, my the reason I yell from the rooftops continuously, because I am concerned that what they did to me, rest assured, they will do to you. Because I was just a practice run. The same as January 6th. It's a practice run within which to violate someone's First Amendment constitutional right to imprison them. And worse than that, it will ultimately be, you know, to, you know, violate um, your, again, your constitutional rights and take from you whatever it is that the government wants. So I do then want to move on and ask you this because there's so much obviously going on in the world. America is involved in two wars, Ukraine, Russia and Israel, Hamas. And Senate Republicans, and I hear all the people yelling about, oh, it's the Democrats, the Democrats aren't good for Israel. Senate Republicans have blocked all future funding to both unless they get concessions on budget packages. How dangerous is this to Ukraine, to Israel, and more importantly, to the world as a whole? Yeah, so... Russia, after a, a, a few months of inactivity, just within the last 24 hours of the Senate Republicans blocking the aid package, decided to start firing missiles again. If that's not a clear cause and effect scenario, I don't know what is. And I think right now, Israel has the benefit of having the United States support right now as to what's going on. But that aid package, all of it is being tied together. and. That is the problem that the Senate Republicans seem to think, including the House Republicans, by the way, because it starts in the House. The House Republicans seem to think that that's the only way that they're going to be able to gain any ground or any type of leverage because they don't have what it takes to be able to get anything done effectively. It's a danger to democracy. It's not just a danger to Ukrainians and a danger to Israelis. It's a danger to democracy because that's when you start picking off the democracies, when you allow the Putins and when you allow Hamas to do what that terrorist group has been doing, unchecked and unfettered, it creates a danger to all of us and not just to specific countries or groups of people. So let's just stay on Hamas for a second, because it's clear Hamas uses violence as a weapon. 
and the rape of innocent women at a concert on October 7th is now very, very well documented. Allegations as well of Russian soldiers raping Ukrainian women as well. Where is the outrage? I I don't see the outrage by the world. I don't see the outrage by America. Are we becoming numb as a society to the treatment of women? That's a really heavy question. Last weekend, I had a Washington Post columnist by the name of Jennifer Rubin on my show. And she had written a very powerful op-ed about exactly this point, the silence of the international community and even those here within the United States as to the brutal horrors that were inflicted upon women, children, children by Hamas terrorists on October 7th and thereafter. We also have heard that the breakdown in the ceasefire happens because Hamas started playing games about who they were going to be returning in terms of the hostages. They were supposed to be returning the women and the children first. Then suddenly they said, we're going to start giving you the elderly men. What happened to the remaining women? And so I agree. I do think that it's been slow to start, but I do think now people, including the United Nations, are coming forward and demanding the required investigations that have to be done to prove that these crimes have occurred. These are war crimes. These are not things that should be turned a blind eye to. And as I told Jen Rubin when we were speaking on my show, it's not just to the Israelis. It's to all women at large. But I will say this. It's not a contest. It's not a it's not a contest between the what some people have called the oppression Olympics or the horrors of war or the terror or the violence that gets inflicted upon women. We should focus our attention and rightfully so on the disgrace if you don't speak up, regardless of who ends up being the victims of it. Well, I mean, well said. But I want to then just jump on and spend a second talking about, should be more than a second, but anti-Semitism is clearly on the rise since the October 7th attack. And last week, the presidents of three major universities, and I know some of you went to the school and my daughter's an alumni at one of them, MIT, Harvard, and University of Pennsylvania. They met before Congress and it didn't necessarily go so well for them. Why is the war in Gaza divided students and faculty alike? I mean, the comments, the answers by these presidents were so abhorrent, they could not answer the question. I thought it was so remarkable. You saw who was asking the questions, right? Yeah, Elise Stefanik. Elise Stefanik. And I was like, that's it. I found that to be very fascinating. And I was like, you know what? I'm glad that she had that level of disgust, that these answers were just so repugnant that were coming. This is a real head scratcher for me. I I went I went to a school that is an Ivy League. That's not one of those three. Although my alma mater is having its problems as well in its campus, there is an ignorance I think that exists. But it's not an ignorance born of a willful blindness. I think it's a lack of respect of history. I don't think people understand history enough to be able to go back and understand that it's not just right now that's happening. You have to go back and consider all of the history that's there. But when you only do it to frame a narrative, if you only drive something to frame a narrative and you ignore reality, facts, evidence, and history— I think you end up creating the situation where you have these types of environments where it's okay for the types of protests that are happening to take place. Now, protest is okay. Let me be very clear. Protest is okay. But having a Jewish student have to barricade themselves so they, out of fear of being physically harmed if they leave the building, that's not right. Just like if you flipped the script and it was the opposite. And so I don't know if we're also seeing a problem, Michael, which is a lack of humanity, a lack of empathy that's happening, even with our young kids, where you think they're so much more progressive and they're so much more open-minded than we are at our older ages. But I don't think, I don't know if that's lacking right now. And I wonder why that is happening. So so it has to be done at the same time. 
Right. And you know, it's funny because that's part, that's part of the next question that I'm bringing up is can you not be pro-Palestinian as well as pro-Israeli at the same time? And I'm, Absolutely, not, so, you I'm can. not so certain that you shouldn't be. I mean, there are innocent civilians that are being killed. I don't think that that's something that is questionable. However, I asked this of everybody, of all the people that have come on my uh, Mea Culpa podcast, I asked them the same question, which is, what is a reasonable response that Israel could or should do in regard to October 7th? And nobody can give you an answer because it didn't happen to you. It happened to them. And Israel has no choice but to defend itself. And we want Israel to defend itself as a democracy. I believe it's incumbent upon the Palestinian people in order to rid Palestine of Hamas. Only then can you ultimately have peace, right? Because Hamas is already said, and again, like I said with Donald Trump, when he says it, listen to what they're saying. They want to destroy the state of Israel, plain and simple, and all Jewish people. So I don't have the answer. No, actually, nobody really has the answer to that question. It's a tough one. What is a reasonable response that is, could you imagine if hypothetically Mexico did that? They came across our Texas border and they decided that they were going to attack our kids who are at some music festival. What should the United States do? Nah, don't. Again, you know, we may say, well, it's, we got to take care of it. We have to do whatever we need to do. Well, now all of a sudden you have the rest of the world turn around and say, well, I think you're going a little bit too far. You know, we don't like the results of what's happening. And everybody has a right to their opinion. But unless you're there and unless it's your family and unless it's the people who you care about and the cause that you care about, everybody seems to have a very different. Um, but to your point, they're not mutually exclusive. You can be pro-Israeli. You can also be pro-Palestinian, because I think what's happening is there's been a conflation of Palestinians and Hamas. Right. That's why I am always very, very stridently using the phrase Hamas as a terrorist organization. There is a reason why I think because Hamas is a terrorist organization, you're seeing the response that you're seeing from Israel. But I completely agree with you. And I also agree with Michael to the extent there is no right answer to frame it. Right. You don't have to necessarily be just pro-Israeli or just pro-Palestinian. I think, though, you, because there is no right way of answering it. And because I will say this, I mean, it's so off topic ish, but in my life, I'm 48 years old. So I've been around for a little bit, still very young. Um, I have never seen anything polarize people as much as this war. We've been sitting here for a long time talking about the polarization in politics, but I have never seen an event, a global event, polarize people this much. And it's not so much what is right and wrong, because you and I both know what's right and wrong that happened on that day and what continues to happen. I think it's the entrenchment of people and their positions. It's almost the radicalization of how people are looking at it. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that's what's happening, though. I don't know. if I think people are just tuning each other out and they're just not listening anymore. And I think that's a problem because people are really picking a side and absolutely emphatically not wavering from it. But Michael is saying something, which is, I can't speak to it. I can speak to what is wrong. I can speak to what I did today. I had the executive director of Doctors Without Borders on my show to talk about what's happened in Gaza, because that's important for people to understand the disease, the death. I did not have the executive director of Doctors Without Borders on to sit there and blame anyone. They're talking about what is happening there and what is the cause and the what, what is the effect. For me to sit there and say to anybody that their opinion is wrong in this is really difficult for me because I didn't have that direct impact. But I can say that there is this level of a divide that I have never seen in a really long time. It's sad. It really is. Yeah. So look, the hour goes by very quickly, as I like to say on mea culpa. So I have one last question. Then what we can do is we'll, for maybe 10, 15 minutes, we'll take some questions from the audience. But my final question to you, Katie, you were on with Joy Reid last week talking about how Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, the poll workers in Georgia, 
who were falsely accused by Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani, and um, Trump, you know, of the election interference. And you said that they had already been tested and continued to stand up for democracy and freedom. So what, in your opinion, can we mere mortals do as this election cycle gets underway to keep our sanity, but more importantly, to stand up for democracy? I mean, that's the term that we're hearing from everybody now. Democracy, democracy. What do we do? So one of my favorite phrases or sayings is, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You guys know that phrase? It applies to everything in your life, but I think it applies to this. And not to oversimplify things, Michael, but if you were to sit here, and which you have been doing very nicely, by the way, and think about everything that we've been talking about, it's pretty overwhelming. The world right now is very overwhelming. We started this podcast episode about that. The world is very overwhelming. All of this is very overwhelming. The prospect of the demise of our democracy is very overwhelming. But we can't let ourselves actually feel defeated. You're not defeated, are you? You're not, Michael. You have I, been through a lot but, and you're not defeated. Yes, but let me say waking up every day, putting on a smile is really difficult, especially when you have still the full weight of government that is constantly coming down on your head. Now, I started Maya Culpa. Maybe some of you may know this, but I started it because I was bored. I was on home confinement and I wanted my voice to be able to reach out to the world. And I was shocked when the thing just skyrocketed and became a top 25 podcast. I mean, we've now done over 185 million downloads since I started it. So yeah, I'm incredibly thankful for the listeners and the followers, but it is exhausting, you know, and it's not something that one person could do alone. It requires everybody. It requires the Katie Fangs. It requires the you know MSNBC, CNN, even Fox News. I believe we all want democracy for the most part. I think, for God's sake, Sean Hannity could not have laid up a bigger softball for, you know, for Dopey Donald when he's saying to him, you don't want to be a, you don't want to be a, a, a dictator, right? I mean, you could tell the American people right now that you don't want to be a dictator. And the guy still couldn't answer the question. I don't believe Republicans, Democrats, independents, I don't believe any of us legitimately want to see the end of democracy, the destruction of our Constitution. But there is a right wing, a far right wing group, these maggots, the people that I say have three teeth and four brain cells. These folks are fucking hell bent on destroying democracy because they think it's going to do something for them. They think that Donald is their brand, as I was talking about before. He is not, but he has bamboozled them the same way he bamboozled them with The Apprentice. He's bamboozling them to believe it. And that's the danger. And that's why we really all must ensure, you know, whether or not you are Republican, Democrat, doesn't mean that you are registered to vote, that all of your friends, your family, and I don't care if you vote simply for Joe Biden as the president, everybody else Republican down the line. I don't particularly care. I do care about democracy because if we don't have a strong America, which is what democracy provides, there will be a weak world. And the scary thing, I talked to Ali Velshi this morning. I am truly petrified for it. Donald Trump will bring us into a world war. People don't think so. He will bring us into a world war. As I've said before, I have, you know, we have kids who are of fighting age, and I don't want any of us to be kissing our kid goodbye as they pack up their knapsack and head off. And it's, again, it's not hyperbole. Your bite is you getting up every day and doing what you do. And your one bite at a time, one small step at a time is you launching mea culpa and doing what you're doing and what everybody's doing here. That's the point. For for us to continue to have this dialogue where we're not where we're still so inspired to continue to be here for each other in this regard, that's what happens. That is the Ruby Freemans and the Shea Mosses of the world, the people that also look into the void and they say, you know what? I'm still going to make a difference. And that's what we do. And that's how we make it. And we will. And I thank you, Katie, you know, for joining me today in front of this group. 
So Katie, you're the best. I appreciate you. And obviously, you know, I'm going to have you back many, many more times uh, because there's a, just a lot to, for us to talk about. You know, I think what we should do is just take a couple of questions from people in the audience. Uh, if somebody would be so interested. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let me just pass that. Thank you. Hello, can you hear me? Michael, I want to thank you so much for what you do, what you're doing. I'm behind you. A lot of people are behind you, and it means a lot. That's number one. Thank you. I think, in all fairness, I think the thanks really goes to the wife, my daughter, and my son, uh, because they have to put up with me and all of this nonsense. Yes. But I I agree with you. It's worth it. Yes. I have a whole bunch of questions. I want to know what the best way of action. I know I'm only going to do one, but I'm just saying, is there a way to get in touch with you that I can give you a whole bunch of questions? Because I have a bunch of ideas, questions, and all this kind of stuff. That's number one. And I'm going to be on your uh, um, uh, live uh, Monday uh, event as well. But I'm just going to ask, I'm just going to say something a little bit silly. If America is not so great, it needs to be made great again. Why are all the immigrants trying to get in? Why is everybody trying to get in if America is not so great? That's what I want to know. <laughs> because America is great. The problem exactly. is right. and that exactly. is I mean, think about the whole slogan is really kind of stupid it's in ridiculous. and of itself, right? MAGA should really be like make attorneys get attorneys, right? Because, you know, every single attorney that's involved with Donald Trump manages to end up either going to prison, losing their law license. Look, Alina Habasun will probably lose her law license soon, you know, as well. And that's just because Donald doesn't care about anyone. He will allow them to continue to follow what he wants and whatever it is that he wants ultimately costs somebody else. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. Who's next? Hello. Thank you. And thank you for everything you do, both of you. I was wondering about the New York city case where he, um, elevated the valuations in order to get bank loans, the, and then he lowered them in order to get tax relief. Do you think a tax fraud ca- tax fraud case is going to come? So, as much as I would like to answer that question as the key witness in it, it's probably the smarter thing for me not to answer it. Uh, simply so that I don't provide defense counsel with more ammunition to come at me when they're cross examining, but. I believe Donald Trump will be held accountable for all 91 charges that are currently pending against him. Thank you. And thank you very much, both of you, for coming out here and telling this very, very important message. Uh, In my opinion, this country is truly at an existential state. Um, I have a question and a suggestion, if you don't mind. My question is, theoretically, I think we know it's possible that um, Donald Trump could violate his gag order. But what percent likelihood would you suggest that is uh, is there any chance that Chutkin actually sentences him to jail prior to the trial? Is that is that theoretically it's possible, but is that really a likelihood? Yeah. Chutkin's the type of judge who would do it. it it's the you feed somebody enough rope, they hang themselves, right? It's Chuckin providing him with the opportunity not to violate it. Right. He's appealed it. It's now a little bit tighter, but still pretty much intact, very much intact from what she did. And she is the kind of judge that will hold him in contempt of court and she will incarcerate him. I'm not so sure about Justice and Goran. I'm like kind of on the fence about whether or not he would do it. But there's a big difference between a state court judge and a federal judge and somebody like Jeff, somebody like Judge Chuckin would totally do that. Got it. And then a suggestion, if you don't mind, um, because the two of you, I mean, Katie, you're a paragon of journalism. CNB, uh, MSNBC is a, you know, tries to tell the truth to the masses. Michael Cohen, I really enjoy your podcast, Mia, Co- Mia Culpa, as well as, you know, the beatdown. My suggestion is this, uh, and I only say this because both of you are very connected in the overall media universe. And Katie, you said something to the effect of um, one of Donald Trump's superpowers is the fact that, you know, you've got so many different issues going on. He's facing so many different indictments. He's got so many myriad of flaws. It's hard to 
pick just one to focus on. And what I've seen over the years is that Donald Trump and the Republicans have been able to pick some sort of Achilles heel, if you will, and just go over that, go after that one target. In this situation, it seems to me like the target is um, Hunter Biden. My question is, would it be possible, would it make sense to focus on, in my opinion, what is possibly the most egregious um, betrayal of this country, which was the January 6th insurrection? Would it not make sense to in every TV episode, every single show that you're on, every single show that, Michael, you're on, suggest to the producers, again, this is like a long, extensive process, but would it not make sense to have like a 20-second, 30-second clip of the insurrection played every day and so that whenever anybody comes on, especially on the Republican side, ask them, take a look at this over the last 20 or 30 seconds, was this really a tourist visit, because I think that what the Republicans are doing right now is they're trying to sort of flip the script and kind of convince the world that, you know, this was just a normal day. And I think that, in my opinion, between now and November, the more people see exactly what happened, the more likelihood maybe we have a chance of getting some reasonable people to vote the way we need them to vote. Again, just a suggestion, because I don't think that enough people truly have been exposed to really what happened on January 6th. So uh, that's a great point, and I want to bring something up. Another thing that should prove the point that we're trying to make today, Univision will not run any ads from the Biden campaign. Could you imagine this? Univision has decided somewhere along the line, this is the same people that walked away from Trump going back in 2015 when I was there because of the comments Trump made about Mexicans being rapists, murderers, drug deals, but there's a few good ones. All of a sudden now, they're backing Donald Trump's campaign, and they will not run an ad if it's coming from the Biden campaign or any PAC that's affiliated or promoting the Biden campaign. So how do you go ahead then and get to that section of the American people, the entire Hispanic community? Because Univision is humongous. How do you get to them, the January 6th tapes that you're referring to? It's everything in this political arena is so much easier said than done. And it's a fight every single day to even get the information out there. Because especially, you know, one of the things that um, I spoke with Elon Musk, I was one on a panel that was done when he first took over Twitter or X. And I asked him, what are you going to do about the bots? And if anybody here follows and you're active on Twitter, something has happened over the course of the last three, four months, even worse than before. You have more bot farms out there. Anything that triggers the bot farm to come at the writer of a tweet that falls into that algorithm, you get drowned out. It is the most vile shit that you could ever hear on on social media. And then you look at the individual who's saying it, and they have three followers, and allegedly they're from 2018. They've been on the platform. They're all veterans. There's no picture. It's like the back of a camel. And you sit there and you say to yourself, this individual, I shouldn't say, this bot, along with all of the others, what are they doing? They are, they're, they're suffocating the conversation, and that's the danger because legitimate discourse, legitimate conversation cannot be had when you have this, this massive entifada right on somebody who wants to promote the truth, and they come at you with this misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. Your point is well taken. It's just difficult because... Absolutely. No, thank Profits. you. It, it, it's, just, it's terrible. Everything with them is a projection. What is it they say? Every accusation is an admission. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this was great today. I, I would make a comment that I think you're preaching to the converted, right? So, and I'm going to make that so really, and not dismiss New York, but New York's going to be a blue state. What's being done in Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona? Because irrespective of what anybody wants to do to Donald Trump, those states are going to make a difference. 
I'm from Florida. But 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 what's what's being done? Because at the end of the day, that's where Donald Trump's going to focus. He doesn't care about this state. He doesn't care about how many people hate him here or California. He's focusing, and it's a narrow margin to make that difference. So so no, what's you're, done? There? You're right. So. I am in Florida. We have Ron DeSantimonious. I call it Ron DeSantisan. So that's where I live. I'm not leaving Florida. I'm raising my family there. I have a nine-year-old daughter. It's very hard to live in that state. But what we are doing is we're going back to grassroots. We're doing the voter registration, the voter enrollment. That's what you have to do. But what we're also doing is there was a time when nobody knew who was running for a school board, when nobody knew who was running for the more local races. That's what we're starting to focus on in Florida and those other states, because we may not get the votes for a presidential election, right, in our in the state of Florida, but we can start chipping away at it. And I hate to say this, but it's going to take time. If you think Stacey Abrams was able to pull off Georgia overnight, you're totally wrong. It was a long haul for her to be able to do it. And even then, she wasn't able to win the gubernatorial race for herself. So I think people need to not, and you're right, that the problem we have is these conversations, like, well, nobody's thrown anything at us yet, but you know, these conversations are had in rooms where we're all willing to break bread together because we're similarly situated when it comes to our philosophies and our ideologies. I, I don't. Would you go to Fox? Would you do a Fox show? Like if they asked you to go on, would you do it? It depends on who. Um, you know, would I do a Sean Hannity? Yeah, I would. Would I do a, you know, Brett Baer if he's even still there? Yeah, uh, still I mean, there. there there are others that I would not do simply like I wouldn't do. Uh, what's oh, I forget was Waters. Yeah, I, I just I mean, I, forget. I him. wouldn't do Jesse Waters. He's quicker to um, go to Chinatown and do yeah, something racist I mean, than he it's, would. It would be a waste of my time because the second that you start speaking, they just start you know cutting your mic and they start talking over you. And you know their goal, of course, is to create more red meat for their you know for their viewers. But I would. I'll tell you where I think that Democrats got very lucky. And we did not create this. It just sort of fell into our laps. The Roe versus Wade decision. I think no matter how you think about it, no matter what side of the aisle, unless you're a Southern white Christian coalition evangelist, um, I do believe that it is a very significant issue that the Republicans just don't have and it's for they don't know how to deal with it. So if they could make that into a one-issue voter, there's a good possibility. On top of that, it didn't didn't um, you know didn't hurt Joe Biden when he decided to go to Michigan and to you know help resolve the union issue. I mean, these are all things that he's doing. You know, if you think about Joe Biden, what he's done so far, and I get it. I hear from people. All the time. But he's old. Okay. What's the alternative? To be fucking dead? Right? I mean, what's the alternative? He happens to be old, and I grant everybody that. But Donald is only two years younger. Right? On top of that, he's also suffering from what I think is dementia. I mean, he's saying some of the craziest things that you could possibly imagine. But there are issues. And what I think Democrats need to do is to make some of these um, voters into one, you know, one issue type voters and then go real hard, you know, for that in Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania. Obviously, you have a lot of unions, Michigan. Um, you know, you want to go as far as figuring out how to bring them back into your camp, even though they still have their issues with you know, again, Joe Biden's age. And a lot of uh, Joe Biden's issues, believe it or not, is really, I hate to say it, it's Kamala Harris. I mean, so many people, and you start seeing people say, yeah, Kamala Harris. She has what's called Hillary Clinton disease. I don't know why people don't like her. I've met her. I think she's a nice lady. You know, would she be my choice for president? Probably not. But she's a nice lady. I think she's competent. But for whatever the reason is, people don't like her. And I, I don't know the reason. So... Quickly, to the point about the abortion reproductive rights issue, do you, you guys have all heard what just happened in Texas, right? So on Thursday, 
On Thursday, a, a woman, Kate Cox, her husband, Justin, and her OBGYN sued Ken Paxton, the state of Texas, et cetera, um, and the governor because she's in a 20-week pregnancy. She's gone to the doctor, she's gone to the hospital three or four times, and she has um she cannot, if she carries her child full term, she not only runs the risk of becoming infertile, so she can never have children. She already has two kids, by the way. This is her third pregnancy. She can't have kids again, and the baby will die within hours, painfully, after being after she gives birth. And a Texas state judge said to her, we know that the laws in Texas are so draconian, but I'm not going to make this woman have to go through this to to get access to an abortion. So I'm going to tell her you can go get an abortion. So they entered a temporary restraining order. Just yesterday, like at last night, the Texas Supreme Court put a stay on that decision from the Texas judge. The reason why I tell you this is not because you guys are surprised by what happened, but this is what pleasantly surprised me. So on social media, there's been a number of, quote, pro-life influencers and social media accounts that have said, I'm pro-life, but even I don't agree with what the Texas Supreme Court has done because, and it's it's amazing how situational people can be. They look at this woman, she's white, she's married, and she has two kids. She's not black, unwed, and living like in Section 8 housing, right? So they're looking at this woman and they see themselves. They see themselves, right? They see somebody that looks like them, that is situated like them, and they're thinking, oh my God, what if that was my kid? What if that was me? And I hate to frame it in such a simplified way, but it's what we talked about at the beginning. People don't realize it until they think it can happen to them. Do you think Republicans are not getting abortions? They're doing it. They're just doing it a lot more quietly, and they have the financial privilege to go somewhere where they can get it done. When they're coming for mifepristone, when they come for contraception, when they come for IVF, when they come for things that are universally shared as a common denominator experience or an attribute or something that has nothing to do with political party affiliation, that's when change happens, which is why, to Michael's astute point, I mean, we saw Roe v. Wade coming and we all screwed up. We screwed up because we had judges that got elected because we didn't do what we needed to do. And I'm not I'm not blaming wonderful blue states like New York and California. I'm talking about other places where we should have been paying better attention because Roe v. Wade didn't happen overnight. We saw this coming like a really slow moving train. But now that it's here and now we're post Dobbs, what do we do? We end up having these conversations where we tell people this could happen to you. And again, I don't agree with the logic or the rationale as to why you have these pro-life accounts that are suddenly in support of these things. But again, I think it's because they see themselves, and that's why. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we all talked about stare decisis. We asked the questions during the confirmation of the Trump-appointed uh, Supreme Court nominees, and they lied. They lied. But the funny thing, as Katie just said, we knew they were going to lie. We knew who they were. We knew their voting record. And yet we still kept our mouths shut. We still turned around and stuck our head in the sand and said to ourselves, okay, when we finally pull our head out of the sand, everything is going to be okay. And it's not. And the point of this live mea culpa, the point of mea culpa or political beatdown is simply to constantly reiterate the sound, the alarm that more, more bad things are going to come unless, of course, we all start getting active. I want to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you, everybody. Today. Really, truly appreciate it. Thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. American politics in 2023 resemble a tempestuous ocean, waves of scandal and controversy crashing against the shores of normalcy. In this churning sea, three recent events stand out like rogue vessels, each a microcosm of the broader chaos engulfing the nation's political landscape. Now, when I say three, <laughs> trust me, my friends, it's a whole lot fucking more than three, but that's all I have time for. So let's start with the first one, the removal of Donald Trump from the Colorado ballot. 
The second, the unveiling of Jeffrey Epstein's infamous little black book. And who's gonna get fucked on that one? And lastly, Rudy Colludi drunken Giuliani's latest brush with defamation lawsuits. So starting with Trump's Colorado coup d'etat, the former president's attempt to secure a place on the 2024 ballot in Colorado, it backfired fucking spectacularly. Accused of inciting the January 6th Capitol riot, his candidacy was deemed ineligible by a state judge, citing a rarely invoked provision barring those seeking to overthrow the government from holding office. And of course that it's rare. It's rare because nobody else ever in their right mind thought to do this. This legal torpedo, while celebrated by many, further deepened the partisan divide with Trump supporters all crying foul and vowing legal challenges. And why? Because that's what they do. He lies and they swear to it. The Colorado coup d'etat is not merely an isolated incident. It reflects the deep fissures within American society where fundamental questions about democracy and the rule of law are fiercely contested. Trump's continued grip on a significant portion of the Republican base fuels these anxieties, raising the specter of future electoral challenges and worse than that, potential unrest. Now, meanwhile, the second, the specter of Jeffrey Epstein, the financier accused of sex trafficking and abuse of minors, continues to haunt the corridors of power. The recent release of the little black book containing the names and contact information of prominent figures has sent shockwaves through the political and social elite. Now, once this comes out, rest assured, Everybody named in that book. I don't give a fuck who they are. It's just no good. And while the book itself is not proof of wrongdoing, the mere presence of certain names has ignited a firestorm of speculation and accusations. The specter of a potential Epstein-linked sex scandal involving high-profile individuals hangs heavy in the air further eroding public trust in institutions and fueling, well, yeah, more fucking conspiracy theories. Well, let's then jump into Giuliani's Groundhog Day, because for him, that's exactly what it is. This fucking idiot, just like Trump, they don't know when to keep their mouth shut. As if to underscore the pervasiveness of legal woes in American politics, Rudy Colludi, drunken Giuliani, Trump's erstwhile consigliere, finds himself facing yet another defamation lawsuit. Dominion Voting Systems, a company targeted by Giuliani's baseless claims of election fraud, well, first of all, they're seeking $1.3 billion in damages for the reputational harm inflicted by his pronouncements. But it gets even more because Giuliani, who now was found guilty of $148 million for defaming Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shay Moss, he couldn't keep his fucking mouth shut. He did exactly as I said a moment ago, exactly what Donald did. And now they're gonna sue him again for defamation. And these lawsuits, the latest in a string of legal entanglements for Rudy Colludi, it's just a stark reminder of the consequences of spreading misinformation and inciting distrust in our democratic processes. It also highlights the potential financial fallout for those who peddle falsehoods in this political arena. Now, these three events, seemingly disparate, collectively paint a troubling picture of American politics in 2023. These three cases represent a confluence of factors that threaten the fabric of American democracy. The normalization of political extremism, the erosion of trust in institutions, and worse, the worst of them all, the weaponization of the legal system for partisan gain. The road ahead appears treacherous. The 2024 presidential election looms large, casting a long shadow of uncertainty and potential further polarization. 
Now, navigating this political maelstrom will require a renewed commitment to truth, a restoration of faith in democratic norms, and a collective effort to prioritize national unity over partisan squabbles. Only then can America hope to weather the storm and emerge on the other side with a more stable and functional political system. The chaos of American politics today, it's a complex and multifaceted phenomenon. And what makes it multifaceted is the, is the mere fact that Donald Trump, using his nonsense and using his chaos, just sows such division and hatred between Republicans and Democrats, it's never been seen before. The events surrounding Trump, Epstein, and Giuliani, again, just to name a few as examples of the forces that right now are eroding our trust. It's fueling the division and threatening the stability of our nation's democracy. Addressing these challenges will require a concerted effort from all stakeholders to prioritize truth, uphold democratic norms, and work towards a more just and an equitable future for everyone. And as always, my friends, thanks for listening. Our managing producer and editor is Lisa Orkin. Maya Culp is a Midas Touch podcast, executive produced by the Midas Touch Network and LSJ Media Group. Oh, <laughs>